From the Health Sciences Campus at University of Southern California comes POP, an occasional series exploring perspectives on public health. Welcome to POP, connecting community, research, and students, giving us a real-world perspective as told by those seen through the public health lens. I'm your host, Karina Dominguez-Gonzalez, an alumnus of the Master of Public Health program at USC. I'm also a research coordinator here in the Department of Preventive Medicine and Office for Social Justice. Welcome to the premiere episode of POP, Perspectives on Public Health. We're thrilled to be sharing this space with you for learning, reflection, and appreciation of the many ways public health affects us and all the unique ways we experience it. We're starting off our series with a very special episode, a two-part discussion around the life and legacy of late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, known for her profound influence on rulings around gender equality, anti-discrimination, healthcare access, and policy, and other issues impacting the health of individuals and communities. These episodes are both educational and tribute, including readings and personal stories about the justice. We're invited to attend class with Professor Michael Cousineau, and in part one, we'll hear from Professor Ariel Gross from USC Gold School of Law about Justice Ginsburg's iconic career and key cases she was involved in. Welcome back to everybody. Our topic today is, interesting enough, healthcare finance and insurance, and the passing of Justice Ginsburg has a lot to do with what might happen with the Affordable Care Act. Uh, down the line. And so it's actually our beginning topic of commemorating the life of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is really um, appropriate for lots of reasons in public health, as our speakers will talk about. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, became the second female justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. She was born in 1933 in Brooklyn, New York. She taught at Rutgers University and then at Columbia, where she became the first female tenured professor. She served as the director of the Women's Rights Project of the American Civil Liberties Union during the 1970s and was appointed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia in 1980. She was named to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1993 by President Clinton, and she continued to argue for gender equality in such cases as U.S. versus Virginia. She died September 18th due to complications from metastatic pancreatic cancer. So let me introduce our uh, speakers. First of all, starting off will be uh, Professor Ariella Gross. Professor Gross is in the Gould School of Law here at USC. Her research and her writing focus on race and slavery in the United States. She teaches contracts, history of American law, race and gender in the law. She received her bachelor's from Harvard and her JD, Juris Doctor degree, and her PhD in history from Stanford. Next, we will have John Streeter. Justice Streeter is an Associate Justice of the California Court of Appeals, the First District, Division Four. He was appointed to the Court of Appeals in November 2014, and prior to that, was a commercial litigator uh, in San Francisco and had a long career in, in private practice. Justice Streeter earned an AB degree from Stanford in 1978 and a JD degree from UC Berkeley School of Law in 1981. He was a former law clerk to senior judge Harry Edwards of the U.S. Uh, Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. Our next speaker will be Sylvia Drew Ivey. Sylvia is a, a longtime friend of mine and colleague. She is from Washington, D.C., 
She graduated from Vassar College and obtained her Juris Doctor degree from Howard University School of Law. After leaving Howard, she became, began working as the, at the Citizen Advocacy Center in Washington, D.C., at the Native American Legal Defense Fund, and was assistant counsel to the NAACP from 1969 to 1974. Uh, she's had many, many important positions of leadership here in Los Angeles, including the director of the National Health Law Program, and is currently the special advisor President David Carlisle of the Charles Drew University of Medicine and Science. And finally, Angela O. Oh. Angela got her bachelor's and master's in public health uh, from UCLA and went on to law school, received a J her JD degree at UC Davis. She's been in private practice as a criminal defense and civil rights attorney and served on various commissions and boards at local, state, and the federal level. She served as chairperson for Senator Box's Federal Judicial Nominations Committee for the Central District of California and chair of the magistrate judge selection panel in the Central District. She's currently a mediator uh, here in Los Angeles County. Professor Sophia Gruskin, who's my colleague in preventive medicine, could not be on the call today because she's receiving an award for her work in human rights, but she sent me this poem that was written by Maya Angelou that I've asked Lair and Samantha to read. Before I read the poem, I just wanted to say a quick word. As we all know, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, was a champion for gender equality and equity. And it was especially meaningful to me, uh, a lot of her work, because that also included being an advocate for the LGBTQ community. So I just want to say rest in power, RBG. So the poem we're about to read is called When Great Trees Fall by Maya Angelou. When great trees fall... Rocks on distant hills shudder. Lions hunker down in tall grasses, and even elephants lumber after safety. When great trees fall in forests, small things recoil into silence, their senses eroded beyond fear. When great souls die, the air around us becomes light, rare, sterile. We breathe briefly, our eyes briefly see with a hurtful clarity. Our memory, suddenly sharpened, examines, gnaws on kind words unsaid, promised walks never taken. Great souls die, and our reality, bound to them, takes leave of us. Our souls, dependent upon their nurture, now shrink, wisened. Our minds, formed and informed by their radiance, fall away. We are not so much maddened as reduced to the unutterable ignorance of dark, cold caves. And when great souls die, after a period peace blooms, slowly and always, irregularly, spaces fill with the kind of soothing electric vibration. Our senses, restored, never to be the same, whisper to us, they existed, they existed. We can be, be and be better for they existed. That is the end of the poem. I'd also like to say a few words. So I think what Maya Angelou is trying to say in this poem is that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was our great tree. And when a great tree falls, it's as if everything around it kind of shrinks away and there are really no words for the hurt and pain. There's just an inescapable silence that we experience. 
RBG was a great mother, a great educator, wife, a formidable advocate, and one of the most legendary justices uh, in our history. And after she was appointed by Clinton, we all know that she was really famous for her powerful dissents. And there's a saying in constitutional law that the dissents of today are the decisions of tomorrow. And for RBG, that has certainly rung true. Her decisions have become the future of political thought. And even though she's not with us today, her legacy remains. And it's a reminder to us that we can continue fighting for what we believe in. Thank you, Samantha. Thank you, Lair. And to talk about her legacy, let me, it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, Professor Ariella Gross. Thank you. Um, and thanks for the poem and the words, very meaningful words. So I just want to talk for a few minutes about Justice Ginsburg, but really when we're thinking about her legacy, historically, I would say that her legacy as an advocate, as a lawyer, is at least as, and maybe more important than her legacy as a justice. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, as uh, Michael said, it was a a lawyer who started out just um, kind of working out of her kitchen, taking cases referred by the ACLU uh, uh, in New Jersey. And, um, and as she started to get more engaged and prove herself as an advocate, um, she came to the National ACLU and, and uh, began the, the Women's Rights Project. And, and as a lawyer, Um, Her work for the ACLU arguing for women's rights um, really established the important precedents uh, on which all of our um, civil rights jurisprudence based on gender rests. Uh, So her first oral argument before the Supreme Court and the most important gender discrimination case of the 20th century was in 1970, Frontier versus Richardson, where where she used uh, the analogy between uh, gender and race discrimination to argue that we should look as skeptically on distinctions um, made on the basis of gender as we do at distinctions made on the basis of race. So she argued for uh, a standard uh, of strict scrutiny for all gender classifications. Let's look really closely at why we should discriminate against uh, women in a in a particular case. And she was able to get four justices on board with um, actually the that high highest level of scrutiny. Um, the the vote that uh, you know it ended up being um, a victory but not with a full majority for that, for that highest level of scrutiny. Instead, we got an intermediate a level of scrutiny, but it was uh, still an extremely important case for um, establishing that now the Supreme Court was going to take very seriously all discriminations based on gender. Um, And that was followed by a series of really important cases in the 1970s that that looked at all of the ways that U.S. law still made distinctions. Um, Two of the most important were the cases uh, involving pregnancy discrimination, one of the ways that women were kept 
um, from being treated equally in the workforce is that they could just be fired if they became pregnant. And uh, the first case established um, that it was sex discrimination um, for women not to receive uh, unemployment benefits um, if they became pregnant. And then General Electric versus Gilbert established that pregnancy discrimination is a form of sex discrimination. Um, so that's really important because there's another strand kind of running through the law that says, oh, no, there's just pregnant persons and non-pregnant persons it has nothing to do with uh, gender. Um, so it was real. Um, Ginsburg's advocacy made clear that it's not just when we say, oh, this applies only to women, that you have to look at all of the ways in which um, women were, were kept in an unequal position, um, including when, when vital aspects of their um, identity, like the ability to become a mother, were the basis of discrimination. Um, when she came to the court, of course, her really landmark majority opinion is the decision uh, in the United States versus the Virginia Military um, Institute, the, the case about VMI. In that case, um, in order to keep an entirely uh, all-male program uh, going, um, the state of Virginia said, we're going to have a, a separate but equal women's uh, school. Um, we'll create it. It'll, really, it'll be just the same. And um, the opinion that um, Justice Ginsburg wrote for seven members of the court said, no, you need an exceedingly persuasive justification in order to discriminate on the basis of gender. And, and today, um, heightened scrutiny is required for gender. After VMI, it became extremely unlikely that any form of gender discrimination was going to pass muster. So it was really a culmination of what was begun in 1970 with the Frontiero case coming forward to um, 1996 to say where, um, how seriously uh, we will scrutinize gender discrimination. Um, of course, uh, 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 Samantha mentioned um, that uh, Ginsburg is most famous for her dissents, and that's because she joined a court that has become increasingly conservative. And and um, I, I want to highlight, however, that she has um, been, you know, the fifth vote in some very important uh, cases, especially when it comes to women's health and reproductive rights. Um, so. Uh, I'm sure that everyone is going to talk about the challenges to the Affordable Care Act. Um, we know the the case that um, came before the court earlier this year and then uh, was postponed um, coming up for oral argument in November is the, the uh, California versus Texas case. Um, it's yet another, I would say, pretty uh, specious or weak challenge to uh, the individual mandate of the Affordable Care Act. Um, it it uh, argues that even though the tax has been eliminated, um, that nevertheless, uh, it's unconstitutional. Um, 
uh, at, to uh, to mandate um, uh, health insurance and uh, and of course if that is up, um, if the Fifth Circuit is upheld and the Affordable Care Act is held unconstitutional, then a host of other provisions, including um, the uh, the uh, protection for people with pre-existing conditions, the ability of children to stay on their parents' insurance until they're 26, um, and a number of other important public health provisions are all at risk. Um, but, but there are others as well, and of course, um, we're all aware of the, the recent decisions on reproductive rights, and including uh, just uh, last term striking down a Louisiana law that set severe limits on uh, the right to abortion. Um, and that was a, another 5-4 decision. Um, so uh, I think most reproductive rights advocates recognize uh, the, that a, a court without Justice Ginsburg um, is in danger of overturning Roe versus Wade. Um, there are other aspects uh, to um, uh, and places where, the, I, finally, the third place I would say that her 5-4 uh, decisions have been so important is uh, in the arena of same-sex marriage um, and protection for the LGBTQ community. And um, again, uh, these are at risk uh, with her um uh, her leaving the court. Um, in terms of, of her, some of her extremely important dissents and issues that are going to continue uh, to come before the court in one way or another, I would just highlight how important has been the threat to anti-discrimination law and to civil rights more generally from the expanding challenges based on religious exemptions uh, to uh, civil rights laws. So she wrote the dissent in Little Sisters of the Poor, um, a case involving um, uh, teachers and religious schools who were fired in violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, uh, in which uh, the the majority of the court said, well, because teachers perform a ministerial function, it's okay uh, to exempt the church from uh, anti-discrimination law. And basically you can discriminate against religious school teachers um, in violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. You can fire them for having a disability. Um, that uh, we, we've also seen, uh, because of this religious exemption argument, challenges to birth control coverage under the ACA. Um, of course, the, the baker uh, making, uh, refusing to bake wedding cakes for, for a gay couple. Um, but this area of law is only going to expand the religious challenges, religious exemptions to anti-discrimination law. And without Justice Ginsburg on the court with a growing conservative majority, um, much of anti-discrimination law can just be hollowed out by um, people being able to, to claim religious exemptions and say, we have a right to discriminate um, 
because it's part of our religious practice to do so. Um, or that's a sphere that, that shouldn't be uh, uh, cut into. And finally, um, uh, you know, probably her most blistering descent, um, which really is one for the ages and I hope will be a beacon for all of us going forward. It was in the Shelby County case um, regarding the Voting Rights Act. And um, as you probably know, uh, the Shelby County case um, really uh, hollowed out aspects of the Voting Rights Act that protected, um, uh, that required uh, states to pre-clear um, laws that might impinge on or, or uh, discriminate against minorities um, such as uh, practices like purging voter rolls, um, strict voter ID laws that don't really have an important basis other than uh, keeping many people from the polls, et cetera. And um, uh, since that decision in 2013, we've seen an enormous number of uh, new voter restrictions passed and, and voter purges um, in just the places where uh, that would have been covered by uh, the Voting Rights Act. Um, other challenges to voting rights are, um, are, you know, continue to come before the court and, um, and Justice Ginsburg's absence will be very much felt. So that's just, um, you know, both to say, uh, her legacy um, in terms of gender discrimination and and uh, civil rights more broadly is um, is extremely important, um, but her loss is also uh, a great loss at this particular moment. I hope you enjoyed part one and hope you'll continue on to part two, which includes reflections from Justice John Streeter of the California Court of Appeals, Dr. Sylvia Drew Ivey, Special Advisor to the President of Charles R. Drew University of Medicine and Science, and Angela O, oh, a Los Angeles mediator. They share more about Gainsborough's life and work, the implication for our own lives and what she meant to so many. This series is brought to you by the Department of Preventive Medicine at Keck School of Medicine of USC, home to high impact research and undergraduate, graduate, and doctoral programs training future leaders in the population and public health sciences. If you'd like to learn more, visit pm.usc.edu.